Hello and welcome to History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we are celebrating the year that was in history games with the 2022 History Game Awards. As in years past, John Harney and I will be giving out awards in a variety of categories as well as crowning the History Game of the Year. However, this year's award show will also feature History Game of the Year nominations from some special guests who have kindly provided us with their choices in a set of short and pleasant audio recordings. I'm incredibly excited about this new development. I hope you are too. So, to get started, let me introduce my co-host on History Respawn, the man who somehow convinced his college to buy him a Steam Deck for, quote, academic purposes, (laughs) Professor John Harney. John, welcome back. Thanks, Bob. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, Uh, but I am very interested in learning a little bit more about this requisition purchase of a Steam Deck (laughs) for uh, your job. uh, Tell us, walk us through that process. What was the the application like? Uh, Who did you have to murder to get it? What happened? (laughs) Well, it was relatively smooth, but now as part of my annual uh, self-summary of, uh, a lot of jobs have this, I'm sure you do too, Bob, I have to summarize how my year went. And I'm supposed to account for how I spent funds. Like, uh-oh, I thought I was in the clear. So who knows? <laughs> um, the short version, I mean, it's it's a weird way to say it, but uh, when I'm teaching video games classes, and you and I teach similar classes in this, it actually solves a ton of problems. Yeah. Um, I ha- We had a computer in the room last January, and it had been set up for VR. And for some reason, that made it just randomly not work. Like, I couldn't load up. Um, uh, Journey to the West, this kind of like sci-fi remake of the Chinese class. It just wouldn't work, like this eight-year-old game. So weirdly enough, the Steam Deck actually is, and this sounds weird, I know, it's the low-cost solution from a kind of an education standpoint. Um, so yeah, so far, let's see how it goes. I probably should write something now, though. That would be good. <laughs> Maybe starting with a conference, that might make it a bit easier. Yeah, well, congratulations to you. I was a sucker. <laughs> I had to go through the pre-order process for Steam Deck. I got into the the second batch of decks that were sent out in the spring. I was pat myself on the back, and then here you come along. You don't even spend your own money, and you get one for and work. It took like a week for work out of, for out of, yeah. Ridiculous. Out of nowhere, Val was like, "By the way, these just we just send them now. It's just like <laughs> it's like buying anything else." That was the we- that was the weirdest thing because for like a year it was like give us money and pray, which is what you you went through. Yes, that's exactly and now, what now I did. Now you can just buy a Steam Deck. Yeah, yeah and now great. you can just do it. You can do it with your academic job, which is, uh, uh, you know, they, yeah. with the what is it right wingers? They always uh, complain about academic malfeasance, and I feel like your name <laughs> should just be right in the right in the dictionary for that for that <laughs> phrase now. Um, Okay, oh, well, so John, are you ready to explore ready. the year that was in history games? Yes. Send out some awards. Okay, excellent. So, we're going to start things with the games that are under consideration, and so these are games that John and I have looked at, that our guests uh, have mentioned and looked at as well. Uh, and so, all of these games, we probably won't get to all of them in this episode. But if you're on this list, then you are you're in good company. This is this is a good set of games here. So. Uh, starting out, uh, games under consideration. These are in no particular order. Uh, I've got uh, Pentiment, Horizon Forbidden West, Victoria 3, The Hajj Trail, Case of the Golden Idol, Atari 50, NBA 2K23 My NBA Era Mode, Ozymandias Bronze Age Empire Sim, 
Zonzo, Steel Rising, Plague Tale Requiem, The Excavation of Hobbs Barrow, God of War Ragnarok, Norco, Cults of the Lamb, Expeditions Rome, Weird West, Immortality, Card Shark, and I left the easiest one to pronounce at the very end, of course, Train to Sachsenhausen. <laughs> uh, and then those are the games that we kind of looked at for this year. And these are our categories here for the History Game Awards. Uh, first category is Shoutout Games. Next is History Games for people who don't like history. Best History Game Character. History Topic We Learn the Most About. Best Game for the History Classroom. Best Old History Game. So this is a game that came out before uh, 2022. Most Anticipated History Game of 2023. Non-History Game of 2022. So this is uh, just our favorite game that didn't have any relation to history. Or maybe it does and we just feel like giving an award. Who cares? It's our award show. Uh, and then lastly, most importantly, the one you've been waiting for, the History Game of 2022. Okay, so those are the games. Those are the categories. So let's start out with our first category, which is shout-out games. And to start us off, I want to play a clip of audio uh, from one of our special guests for this Game Awards episode. Now, I've listened to all these audio uh, samples here. Uh, John has not heard them, so we will get a, a fresh reaction uh, in this audio recording. So let's see if this works. And John, I guess as I'm playing this, give me a thumbs up uh, if you can hear it or not. Hi, my name is Kate Cook. I'm an Associate Lecturer in Classics at the University of St Andrews. Um, and I'm a specialist in the representation of women in historical video games, particularly ancient world video games. I've got a couple of honourable mentions I'd like to give before I get to my history game of 2022, mostly because either one of these games might have been my game of the year, were it not for a late entry that stole the show. Um, and these are Expeditions Rome and Crusader Kings 3, both of which I had to play for work this year, um, and both of which I ended up exploring for quite a lot longer than was necessary just for that work. Um, they're quite different. One is a tactical RPG, one is um, obviously the kind of grand strategy game that the Crusader Kings series is, is, is um, known for. Um, but both of them, I thought, explored stories in a really interesting way and um, shone some really nice and unusual insights into particular periods of history and particular ways of thinking about history. However, my game of the year is, as I've mentioned, a late, ent a late entry um, and is likely to be, I would imagine, quite a lot of people's game of the year this year, and that is Obsidian's Pentiment. Um, Pentiment it makes my game of the year for two main reasons. The first is that it is just beautiful. The manuscript-based style you play as an artist who is working in a monastery's scriptorium to begin with, um, and he kind of follow him through his career. He doesn't stay in the scriptorium, but initially he's working as a kind of artist on manuscripts, um, and the whole thing is designed as a manuscript. So when you want kind of glossary for particular terms, you can zoom out away from the immediate game and you see the sort of um, book that the game is based inside. 
um, characters are all drawn as manuscripts and there are kind of beautiful scripts um, used for the character speech bubbles to distinguish between uh, characters of different levels of education or for example the printer and his family and anyone else you meet who do kind of printing work all speak in a printed type um, the people associated with the church particularly the more educated members have lovely um, kind of copper plate uh, fancy handwriting um, whereas other people in town um, speak with uh, more casual or, or kind of um, less I suppose well-formed scripts um, the attention to this kind of manuscript style I think is is just beautiful and really effective um, but Pentiment for me also brings up a really important second thing which um, I really appreciate it for um, and that is the variety of stories and the kinds of stories we get in this game and particularly for me the stories of women that Pentiment shows I've been saying for some time that um, one of the best ways that I think we can get better representation of women in historical video games is to stop telling the same stories over and over again so stop focusing on war and combat stop focusing on kings or kind of military leaders and in that way we'll see more different kinds of people's stories and that will also kind of shine a light on um, a sort of non-aristocratic people as well um, but it'll be a really brilliant way to bring women to the forefront and Pentiment has come along and done done exactly that. Um, the story of Pentiment is focused on this kind of small town um, with the abbey associated with it. Um, you begin the, the game staying with a local family in the town, um, including two women. Um, you get the chance to kind of speak to some of the nuns associated with the abbey. Um, and it was, you know, when I was speaking to, um, as part of this game, speaking to a nun about how she finds that the presentation of Dido in the Aeneid um, is sufficiently sexist to put her off the poem. And there are therefore or um, other books in the Abbey's library that she prefers that I kind of really got a sense of, of how much this game was willing to engage with these different stories and these different perspectives. Um, there are kind of women who will talk about how their choices were constrained um, in terms of what kind of lives they could pursue because of their sex um, and there are opportunities to go and, and join or kind of watch rather than join in on but uh, watch a spinning bee and get to hear the kind of local women sharing their stories. Um, it's just a really fantastic range of um, different voices that we don't often get in some of these historical games and packaged as I said already in a really beautiful stylized way so it has absolutely um, made made my game of the year for this year. Um, if you'd like to talk to me more about uh, Pentiment or if you'd like to know more about um, women, particularly in ancient world video games, I have a recent edited volume that's come out and indeed that we did a History Respawned episode on. So you can go and listen to that. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at um, at Katex, K-A-T-E-X-E. -E. Thank you very much. All right. So that was Kate Cook. Uh, Kate as she mentioned, uh, was uh, recently on for an episode about her new book uh, from Bloomsbury with Jane Draincott uh, called Women in Classical Video Games. Uh, and she was there uh, talking about Pentiment as her nominee for History Game of the Year. And I liked uh, her audio here uh, because she had a couple of shout-out games, uh, including mm -hmm. uh, Crusader Kings 3 and then uh, Expeditions Rome, uh, which is a game series that... Uh, many, many listeners on History Respawn have asked me to cover, asked us to cover, and we haven't done it yet. So I'm glad that Kate uh, gave it a shout out there. <laughs> uh, we need a month of expedition games one of these months, starting conquistadors and just yeah. go... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we need to we need to do a deep dive of that. So, uh, John, why don't you tell us about your shout out game for 2022? 
Sure. Uh, my shout out game is Weird West. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, I liked Kate's comments about Pentiment. Uh, this is, I guess, time to confess. I haven't played Pentiment yet. It's been a crazy <laughs> end of the year. Hey, that, that's um, probably... why we have multiple people on this is because there's so yeah. many history games now that oh, like you and I can't possibly I play them all. No kidding. But her, her point was such a wonderful point, I think. Um, you know, the, the type of story you choose to tell and then the kind of the way that you tell it. Um, so for me, you know, Weird West is kind of very accessible in that way. Um, it's an interesting amalgam. It's kind of just a top-down strategy kind of game type thing, but it's set in this quasi, you know, um, horror, horrified version, horrified version, I guess, of the Old West. Um but uh, I just really liked it. It's one of these games, you know, I'm a sucker for games that are kind of like tangentially historical, if you know what I mean, that are like completely uh, clearly using very clear historical influences, um, but not consciously engaging with them in any kind of massive way. So the Weird West is this whole kind of element of the undead and the afterlife to it. Um, but still, you're walking around in a cowboy hat and it's subverting these tropes that are kind of there. And, um, you know, if you told me 15 years ago that we'd be talking about the American West with things like Westworld and games like Weird West and Hard West 2, which I haven't played but I've heard really good things about, um, I would be pretty shocked if you told me that 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but here we are. And then Weird West is just, uh, it's a good time. I think it's worth people's time. And um, I don't know if it still is. It certainly was on PC Gamer, the PC Game Pass for quite a while under oh, Microsoft. It's probably yeah. still there. So if if you subscribe to that service, you should go and have a look and see if it's there. And it's worth at least a couple hours to kind of dip your toe into for sure. And is it something that you could play with a controller? Do you need to be, is it kind of desktop? What, you, what's the story there? You can play You can play on a Steam Deck. Uh, <laughs> you can, uh, oh, no, John, so do you hear yourself know, right now? I'm do terrible. you hear yourself? Uh, it's, uh, it's actually, so it's actually, it's very controller friendly um and it's uh um, i've only played it on my desktop but it doesn't seem like a very demanding game that way um yeah and actually even though i mean i do this a lot now i put games on easy um but i i've been sitting back and just playing it and letting these characters interact and uh the game has a lot of character which i like and it kind of it takes the west as this jumping off point and just goes into complete well, weirdness. It's an aptly named game. Um, so uh, whether you're interested in kind of occult vibes, bit of that this year, um, or Cowboys, or if you just like a good strategy game, Weird West is worth a look for sure. Awesome. That sounds like definitely what I'm going to check out. Another uh, game, my shout out game, one that is like John's and it's kind of tangentially related to history. Uh, is the case of the Golden Idol, uh, and this is a game from a, a Latvian developer called Color Gray Games. Uh, and so, the case of the Golden Idol is a. How do we? I mean, I can just read what the developers say. They they call it a, a deduction game, a detective game, uh, and they themselves refer to it as the spiritual successor. Uh, to Lucas Pope's Return of the Ober Dim, uh, which came out in 2019, uh, and was my it's uh, Return of the Ober Dim. I think is my favorite game of the century uh, so far. And so uh, having a game like this uh, that you know kind of it takes the same sort of mechanical notes and kind of the same sort of uh, uh, storytelling techniques uh, it was just right up my alley. Uh, and so the setting for this game is the 18th century, and uh, it occurs over the span of, I think, 40 to 60 years uh, from like the uh, kind of early 18th century all the way up until the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, and it follows uh, the kind of trials and tribulations and uh, murders 
of this uh, kind of weird family uh, that comes across a golden idol uh, somewhere in the new world, in the colonial world, uh, brings it back home, and it leads to all sorts of uh, disasters, uh, much in the same way that you have in uh, Return of the Obra Dinn, uh, with kind of a uh, an artifact uh, from the sea leading to uh, the disaster on board that ship. Uh, and so the way that this game plays is it plays very similar to Ober Din in the sense that you are investigating a uh, murder scene that is uh, happening, uh, you know, is kind of in the midst of happening. Uh, so in some cases, somebody, you know, like the very first murder, somebody's literally just been pushed off the ledge uh, to their death. In another one, uh, somebody has uh, spontaneously combusted. And so you have characters who are reacting to that and you are looking at the scene uh, in a way that's very reminiscent to a 1980s, early 1990s uh, LucasArts uh, adventure game. So it's kind of got that pixelated retro style. Uh, and so you are rifling through people's pockets, you are opening up pantries, uh, while people are reacting to this murder <laughs> that has occurred. And it is it is a game that, again, is a spiritual successor to Oberdin, but it's a game that has a wonderful and perverse style and humor all its own. And I absolutely loved it. It's, it's on sale now on Steam, I think until the 5th of January. Uh, and so if you're looking for something to play that's short and sweet, and you can play on a Steam Deck, uh, as Hoity Toity John Harney just mentioned. Uh, this is the this is your type of game. I want to say as well. I just I'm just in awe of the stones of those developers because in certain nerdy circles like ours, comparing yourselves to Oberdin or anything Lucas Pope has done is like okay, you guys are confident. <laughs> I like it, and, I, and and good good for them for delivering. That's that's awesome. Yeah, that's it's awesome. it's really good. You know, it's been on a lot of Game of the Year list, and then it won uh, the award for narrative. Uh, from Indiecade uh, for their 2022 awards. So, um, you know, like you said, uh, you talk a big talk, you got to back it up. And I feel like they did. Like it's, you know, it's definitely something they're kind of, they're doing a couple of things. They're playing homage to Lucas Pope, but then they're kind of paying homage to, to um, you know, early 90s adventure games, kind of like the Tim Schafer adventure games, uh, mm. you know, Maniac Mansion. It's got that same kind of weird, uh, perverse and off kilter uh, form of humor. It's just it's just a really great package, and I think it's on sale for like twelve dollars right now. I, easy, easy recommendation. Yeah. Easy, easy, easy. Uh, okay, uh, so that's our first category. Let's move on to our second category, which is history games for people who don't like history. And to start us out, I'm going to play another guest audio clip, and here we go. Hello everybody, uh, my name is Chris Kempshaw, I am a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter and I am here to talk about my history game of 2022. Now I was very tempted when thinking about this to pick my current ongoing uh, save on the sports simulator game Football Manager um, as it's the game that I've probably played the most this year um, in the process of moving house. Um, however, it's not history at the best of times, and I've now reached 2049, um, kind of year-wise, in that game, which means it's moved a very, very long way away from anything historical. Um, so I think that probably rules it out. So, the game I'm going to pick 
is a game that I played with um, Bob and with my friend and colleague uh, Dr. Vander Wilcox on an episode of History Respawned, which is the first-person shooter game uh, Izonzo uh, by the makers of Verdun and the makers of Tannenberg. And the reason I've picked this game is kind of multifaceted, really. Firstly, and you know, I say this with a little, a lot of love and a lot of understanding, with the best will in the world, I don't think that many people knew that Italy were in the First World War and necessarily cared that Italy were in the First World War. But what you've ended up with with Isonzo is a game that is really lovingly produced and reconstructed. The developers, particularly uh, Jos Hobe, have gone to incredibly kind of great lengths to craft a vision of the Italian front during the First World War um, that they've reconstructed from photographs and from kind of primary sources and the like and they've married it to the existing first-person shooter um, technology and infrastructure that existed in Verdun and in Tannenberg. Um, so you know the game looks fantastic I'm not particularly good at it but that's not a that's not a uh, a high bar for, for whether a game is any good or not. But what I find particularly interesting about Isonzo is the fact that in itself it represents a triumph. That first-person shooter, First World War games didn't simply die out at Battlefield 1 or die out at the end of the First World War centenary. The developers of this franchise of games is clearly riding the crest of a, of a very noticeable wave and that it wasn't an alien, ridiculous idea for them to decide to make an Italian first-person shooter game. So what we've got with Isonzo is a game that is gorgeous, it is very good fun to play, and it's also exploring a part of history that is so under-acknowledged and under-explored in historical computer games that to all intents and purposes it didn't exist before Battlefield 1 briefly touched upon it and then Isonzo really dived right into it. So that is my historical game of the year. Um, I definitely recommend you give it a go if you've got it or you've got the opportunity to play it. Whilst there are still players, eventually those servers will become a little sparse and die out. But they're planning a good number of expansions and they like to add in new content, which is very interesting and very exciting. Um, so yeah, if you are interested in historical games and historical first-person shooters and the First World War, I definitely recommend giving Isonzo a go. Um, do I want to plug anything when I finish? Well, you can always get hold of me and hear my kind of historical First World War computer gaming musings on Twitter, assuming that Twitter is still alive by the time this goes out, um, or the likes of Instagram and Hive. Um, all of those are at Chris Kempshaw. Um, I have a book out at the moment. It's called The History and Politics of Star Wars, Death Stars and Democracy, um, which I like to think is very good. Um, and very pleasing. So definitely take a look at that. There's a 25% discount code on my um, on my Twitter page at the moment. You can see on the pinned tweet, which means that if you end up buying like six or seven copies, then those savings really start to add up. So it's definitely worth exploring. But aside from that, um, Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy New Year. And I look forward to hearing and seeing more historical computer games chat in 2023. Uh, so that was Chris Kempshaw, uh, favorite here 
History Respawned. And I wanted to play uh, Chris's audio there for our category, History Games, uh, for people who don't like history. Uh, because I think that Chris has uh, done a really good job uh, with uh, computer games, but then also with Star Wars, of kind of, you know, leading in with historical knowledge and kind of making that interesting for an audience that might otherwise not care at all. And then I also liked it uh, because his uh, kind of initial gut reaction to go with Football Manager uh, was something that uh, spoke to me and my nominee uh, for this category, which is NBA 2K23, My NBA Era Mode. Uh, so NBA 2K23, this is the uh, kind of AAA uh, release uh, each year, annual uh, NBA basketball game. Uh, and uh, this series uh, over the past decade has really included a lot of historical modes and kind of most famously, uh, they've been known for their modes focused on exploring the career of Michael Jordan. I think that started in 2013, 2014, where they had a, a kind of a Michael Jordan mode where you could go through and play through his most famous games, uh, his uh, kind of biggest career moments, his biggest shots, uh, and see if you could replicate them. Um, and uh, in this new mode, however, in uh, my NBA era uh, for uh, this uh, newest game, uh, you can actually go back and play in historical eras going back to the early 1980s, also the 1990s, uh, and then the the distant era of the early 2000s. <laughs> uh, and uh, oh, you don't necessarily have to play as Michael Jordan. You can pick any team, uh, and that team will have a historically accurate roster uh, that you can play as, and you can go through and play through uh, one of these decades, the 1980s, 1990s, uh, or the 2000s, and uh, see what you can get up to. See if you can make your team uh, kind of the reigning dynasty in the 1980s instead of the Celtics or uh, the Lakers, uh, or see if you can overcome Michael Jordan uh, in the NBA playoffs during the 1990s. Uh, and so it's just a really in-depth historical simulation, and it's one that I've never seen in a, a sports game, uh, let alone an NBA game. And, you know, John, you and I looked at uh, MLB, the show's historical mode, I think a mm-hmm. couple years ago, and you could play like kind of famous historical moments uh, in that mode. But in NBA 2K23, through the My NBA Era mode, you can play an entire season as a historical team. So I started the 1980s with my favorite NBA team, the San Antonio Spurs, and I've got Iceman Gervin, and I'm trying to get us into the playoffs. Uh, But then a part of me, uh, the game uh, mode that I'm in, it starts in the 1983 season. A part of me wonders, well, shouldn't I just tank? Shouldn't I just purposely lose every (laughs) game so I can get Michael Jordan in the 1984 NBA draft? And so it gets into all of these fun kind of uh, historical what ifs uh, of these different eras in NBA history and getting the experience to play as, uh, you know, famous historical players. It's just a really cool mode. And, you know, we used to have a, a category here on History Respawn for these game awards about best dad game, you know, dad in quotes. <laughs> and I feel like this game really tops that list for me uh, this year. I feel like there should be a mini game if you're playing anyone who isn't Jordan in the early 90s of like 
you know, press X, press these quick action, quick time events to avoid randomly insulting or upsetting Michael Jordan. <laughs> so he doesn't like take it personally and destroy you. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is all. Um, I, a quick uh, sports shout out for me actually as well. Out of the park baseball, that series is still mm. going. It's still fantastic. It's still an acquired taste. Um, but if you have any interest in baseball or even just sports management, you can go and you can decide, I want to be the 1927 Yankees. Oh, cool. Or I want to be some other team in 27. I think it goes back as far as the 1870s. Um, and it's just this in- an incredible idea. But I think what 2K kind of has over that is this more, what's the word I'm looking for, more immediate kind of, you know, you're playing Jordan, I yeah. guess, or you're playing. Yeah. That sounds that sounds amazing. This is you, this makes you want to buy a basketball game for the first time yeah. in years. Actually. And real fast, uh, in addition to having the uh, historical players, historical stats, uh, kind of historical uh, uh, money uh, options for the different teams in the different cities, uh, they also do a really good job of historicizing uh, each game with a presentation. So when you're playing in the 1980s you get a uh, kind of a veneer over the screen that makes it look like an old uh, CRTV. Uh, And then you also have uh, older uh, NBA announcers. These are people who are still on the radio, but they used to be on TV back in the 80s and the 90s. And so they've come in and done commentary, pre-recorded commentary about games and players from the 1980s. It is really, really, really cool. That's incredible. Yeah. That's way far. That's so further beyond these companies ever go, you know? Yeah. Or that's Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I, I don't know why I feel bad because my game is not a sports game at all. But in the same way that uh, I think, the, you know, NBA 2K23 is like, you know, playability is a big thing. I picked Cult of the Lamb, which I think of as a highly, highly playable game. For people that don't know, Cult of the Lamb has been described as kind of a crossover of... um kind of like Animal Crossing slash dungeon-like, um, which has actually kind of been done, like the Rune Factory series and things like that have done things like that. Um, and it, it is a bit like that. It's a beautiful look. I, I love the way the game looks. I love the way the game sounds. I find the game very charming, um, although you can do horrible, horrible things to your cult followers. Um, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it manages to do it, make you smile while you're doing it. Um, it like a lot of these games, it kind of struggles because it doesn't want to get too easy because then the game kind of becomes pointless but you kind of hit a bit of a ramp up after a while um but you know it's a real uh despite that it's a real kind of sit back and play kind of game and you can down hours in it before you've even realized that you have and you can kind of spend more time if you prefer on building the little village you can go out into the dungeons and uh but it definitely belongs here because uh the game kind of centered on defeating these bishops um, you're effectively a cultist who's been recruited by, you know, some kind of, it seems to be at least at the start, a kind of an antichrist type figure to take down this organized religion, which is ostensibly just made up for the game. But for example, the first boss you face is called Leshy, which is a direct reference to Russian folklore. Mm. Um, and all the bishops are kind of referenced after these kind of folkloric, what, you know, certainly the Christian world used to call pagan kind of traditions. Yeah. So there's a lot of kind of fun you know, the, the this game is deliberately doing some fun things with that um, and kind of they're successfully um, detaching themselves from preconceptions of what organized religion is um, under this veneer of it being, oh, it's just a fun game where you form a cult or whatever. So there's kind of some stuff that's gone on there 
uh, with Cult of the Lamb. And uh, and I just think, I think of all the games I played this year, it was the easiest to just pick up and play for like 30 minutes to an hour. It's got that Dead Cells, Spelunky type thing. Where yeah. like, I can play that. I can yeah. play that for a bit here before I watch TV with my wife. <laughs> that's awesome. And, you know, that's actually one of the reasons that playability and that kind of time sync, that's one of the reasons why I didn't play this game. This is because I was worried that if once I started Cult of the Lamb, I wouldn't play anything else. And so yeah. I'm holding that for next year, but I'm glad to hear that you really enjoyed it and you recommend it. Definitely. No, it's really good. Definitely. We're, 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 we're barely through this. We're barely started this podcast. Like, God, a lot of good games came out this year. It was a great year. <laughs> yeah, we are we are spoiled. And uh, I'm really glad we have uh, you know people, guests, uh, who have been willing to share their thoughts with us because otherwise we would... We would have too much of ourselves, and then you know, there's there's so many games. I mean, there's just there's so many games. There's too many games. Um, all right, well, let's talk about some more games. <laughs> so our next category is best history game character. So this is a character uh, that was introduced to us this year in a history game, uh, and this could be somebody who helps uh, kind of enliven our knowledge of the past or just makes the game more fun. So John, I'm going to let you go first. What was your best history game character from 2022? My best history game character was the Comte de Saint-Germain from Card Shark. Uh, people who don't know what Card Shark is, um, it's this game set in 18th century France. Beautiful looking game, really wonderful kind of design choices and artistic choices on how to present the game. It is kind of a collection of lots of mini games where you play this kind of down on his heels young man who is the Comte de Saint-Germain who was a real historical figure um, he teaches you to kind of be a chief and to be this kind of cad and this kind of cad about town but the Comte de Saint-Germain has kind of political maybe even anarchic kind of ideas what he wants to happen this is only this is briefly before the revolution effectively in France and you meet Voltaire pretty early in the game and you sit in coffee houses and tea houses and all this kind of stuff um, and we'll talk more about Card Shark I think later in the podcast but the Comte de Saint-Germain I like him because he's a fun character he's just kind of fun to be around he's effectively the tutorial character in some ways at the outset but it doesn't really feel like that and it's a nice way that if you're playing this game and you Google Comte de Saint-Germain, you're like, oh, this guy was weird. Like this real guy who existed, <laughs> who's a strange person. Wait a minute. There were lots of these guys like, yeah, you know, if you weren't, if you were born into high society and had nothing better to do, you could be a weirdo for 40 years. <laughs> That's kind of what he did. Um, and so I like that about him. And he, so he's representative of a, you know, Kate made this point earlier, telling different kinds of stories. Yes. Um, he's just a different type of historical character to pluck out and to show to the player so i really like him for that reason i thought he was great and he's just he's just a great within the game he works really well as well mechanically yeah he's fantastic and you know he's uh i love how the developers have presented him because he's very nurturing especially at the very beginning and kind of walking you step by step through this process of learning these cheats uh and kind of helping you with your grammar uh, as well, you know, kind of educating right. you because you you start out as kind of a lowly, um, not a waiter, I don't tavern assistant, I don't really know how to put it, but yeah. you are kind of a lowly peasant uh, who happens to be working in this tavern that he comes by and decides to kind of take you under his wing, and he's just a he's just a really uh, effective uh, portrait of uh, kind of 18th century uh, life, uh, 18th century thought process. And then kind of the corruption of the ancient regime. <laughs> you're yeah. like, you kind of look at it and like, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe the revolution was a good idea. Maybe, maybe this was something that was uh, 
that was worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah, so. we'll we'll come back to Car Chart. That's a huge strength yeah. of the game, actually. I think, and he that character kind of personifies that. And I'd forgotten. Yeah, you, the, for people who haven't played the game yet, you know, you'll be on your way to the next tavern or whatever, and he's teaching you the next mini game you need. And so it's like, do you want to go through that again, or are you ready to rest? And you press rest as the character. Okay, let's get back to your letters. And so there's this very kind of you yeah. know, um, uplifting slash enlightenment thing he's doing. Which, which again, kind of fits the time period. Yeah, so it, was, it was good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, he gets along well with Voltaire, and you know, it kind of fits into that kind mm -hmm. of, uh, I don't know, 18th century zeitgeist of you know, right. kind of a changing era. Uh, but he doesn't want it to change too fast because you know he wants to to rip off these uh, rich nobles while they still have money <laughs> and influence. Uh, so my best history game character of the year is Alva. Uh, from Horizon Forbidden West. And so Alva is a kind of a difficult character to talk about because she comes in, I'd say, the, like the maybe that past the halfway point in mm -hmm. Horizon Forbidden West. And uh, Horizon Forbidden West, this is the sequel to uh, uh, Horizon, uh, what's it called? Uh, Zero Dawn, sorry. Uh, and so this is the game with uh, the kind of uh, cyber dinosaurs, uh, this kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, future dystopian world, Aztecs. dystopian Aztecs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, starring Aloy, a uh, big PlayStation game. Uh, and this game, Forbidden West, I think it's longer. Uh, than Zero Dawn, so it's like 50-hour game, 60-hour narrative. And so Alva comes in at like halfway through that, like 30 hours in. Uh, but she's a really impactful character, not only because I think uh, her uh, voice actor is really uh, really good, uh, Allison J, as her voice actors, uh, and, but also because uh, Alva uh, reminds me a lot of myself as a young historian. So Alva's role is that she is with a society called the Quen, uh, and they are located in kind of the uh, kind of the Pacific. Uh, they don't really talk about you know where in particular they come from, but they have come to uh, kind of this uh, this world uh, in uh, Forbidden West in what is the destroyed ruins of San Francisco. Uh, and Alva's character is what's known as a diviner. And so her job is basically to be uh, a, a historical researcher. Uh, she is going into this destroyed version of San Francisco to learn more about uh, the origins of her people. Uh, and then in particular to learn more about uh, the history of uh, their leader, their leadership structure, which is built around uh, somebody called the CEO. Uh, and so there's a lot of really funny uh, kind of uh, modern day commentary that's built into Quinn society. And I don't want to spoil that for anybody who's interested. Uh, but what I love about Alva is she becomes a part of Aloy's crew. And so in Forbidden West, you have kind of this mass effect thing that goes on where uh, you are getting a group of allies coming together to help Aloy deal with problems uh, in this game, in this world. Uh, and during that uh, kind of... Uh, you know, building of the team, you run into Alva and she provides a lot of uh, kind of interest in how the history of the world is perceived by uh, people of this era. And, and uh, not to spoil too much, but Aloy knows what happens. She is kind of the historical expert, uh, but Alva is kind of the graduate student uh, to Aloy's professor. And she has got a little bit more knowledge, but she really relies a lot on Aloy to fill in the blanks 
and in particular to uh, overcome some of the misperceptions that she has of the people uh, that already exist in uh, the West, right? So the Quen, they have a very negative opinion uh, about anybody who has not reached the same level of advancement as them. Uh, but Alva comes to realize through her exploration, through her study of uh, ancient texts, so old computers, basically, um, that things are way more complicated. And a lot of the stories that she has been studying and learning uh, and uh, kind of uh, promoting amongst her people, but then uh, to others that she runs into, those are based on lies. Uh, and so it's really kind of compelling portrait of what happens to uh, people when they go into the archives and they study primary sources or they begin to study historiography and you know how this changes their perception about uh, kind of the old stories of the past that they've heard from their parents or they've heard in uh, you know, primary or secondary schools, but now they kind of get into graduate school and they kind of learn, you know, how is this meat processed, right? How does the, how does the sausage get made? And it kind of flips her perspective. And so, uh, my nominee for best history game character, Alva, uh, from Horizon Forbidden West. And I, I I'd like to talk, I could talk for an hour about her, but <laughs> I'd like to leave it up to uh, the listeners to go and explore her character. Cause it's really, it's really, really well yeah. done, really compelling. I, I love that pick because um, I feel like a couple of years ago when the first game came out, you and I were like, no, this is kind of a history game. I know it's about dino cyber dinosaurs in the future, but it's really about this kind of past. And, you know, the, you know, for the second game, it's, you know, the developers are like, oh, yeah, it's totally about that. Like the second game is entirely about digging into like the past. Yeah. And the game does some really interesting ideas as well around how society is structuring itself and how power structures work, because that's a big thing for her. Right. She's suddenly like, oh, now I'm at odds with the power structure in my society yeah which i kind of wasn't before um and i you know and people are kind of rolling their eyes at the power structure some people are mm -hmm. but uh but but what are you gonna do yeah you know you can charge and it's in our texts and that's the way it is and human societies were like that for a long time yeah um, and some yeah are, exactly know? and she goes into this game uh trying to further entrench a historical narrative that has been built up by her society and by the CEO leader. But right. she comes out of it basically being a key debunker in that mm -hmm. narrative, right? Kind of flipping the script uh, and changing attitudes. And it's just, it's really compelling. It's just really well done. And I think that whole game's great, but I think her position in particular is just fantastic. I love it. I love it. All right, well, let's move on uh, and let's talk a little bit about uh, the history topics that we learned the most about in 2022. And I'm going to go first and I'm going to say cheating at cards in Card Shark. <laughs> uh, so this is a game uh, John talked about a little bit uh, at length, or I should say at length, uh, with relation to uh, the Compt. Uh, and I have been playing it quite a bit as well. I played about three hours of this game. And I can't wait to get back into it, uh, mostly because of the history, but then also because of these card mini games. Uh, so over the course of the kind of the early hours of this game, you learn a series of uh, card tricks uh, that you will use during the game in order to uh, swindle uh, rich players uh, and to help the comp uh, swindle these players. And so initially you start out uh, kind of very comically <laughs> as a, a waiter in one of these taverns and you help the comp uh, 
with his uh, high stakes card game uh, by looking over the shoulder of uh, the patron he's playing against while pouring them wine. And so it's a really fun mechanic because you have got to use the controller to pour the wine. Uh, but then you've also got to kind of lean over at the same time and look at the cards that they have, but you can't linger too long and look at the cards or else the wine that you're pouring in will spill over. Uh, and so it's kind of like, uh, it, it's kind of like a con artist trick, a uh, very simple one. And then later on, uh, you are able to participate directly in the card games themselves and you learn different, different shuffling techniques. Uh, you learn different techniques about how to use the cards, how to mark the cards in order to uh, kind of predict what's coming down uh, from the shuffle and from the dealer as well. Sometimes you get to play as the dealer and so you can stack the deck in favor of the comp. And it's just, it's really a lot of fun and they're really fun and compelling mini games. Although I would say kind of one point of criticism in playing with the controller, I'm not sure it's the same way with the mouse and keyboard, but playing with the controller, I was sometimes confused, uh, particularly mm. with the shuffling techniques. I was sometimes confused as to which card I was picking up and marking and sending to my ally uh, because I often felt like it was the, it, I should have been doing it in the opposite direction that the cards were laid out, but sometimes the first inclination that I had was the right one. It, it, the game, I feel like in some places, doesn't do a good job of uh, you know describing to you as to what exactly is going to happen when you hit a button. <laughs> so that's a little <laughs> that's a little scary. It adds to high stakes tension, but uh, I think overall, learning how to cheat at cards in the 18th century is something that I I'm looking forward to explore further uh, in 2023. Yeah, and they balance the kind of tension of you could screw this up quite well, like, but you can't. It, it doesn't become this frustrating thing you keep getting wrong, per se. Unless you're old like me, and it's like, oh, which direction for diamonds again, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, we started this for recording, Bob. It really feels like a DS game. like, mm -hmm. it, uh, And I mean that as a compliment. Like, it's spiritually a Nintendo DS game in so many ways. <laughs> if you could reach out with the stylus and grab the suit rather than worry about, you know, pressing left at the exact right time, um, maybe it would be a different game then. But, uh, no, it's great. It's a it's and it feels different from other games. Yes. It, it, without without doing anything kind of crazy. I you know in terms of his topic, learned the most about. I had Car Track down as well in part. Um, I have two games: Car Track and Victoria Three. My topic, a little bit embarrassingly, is 18th and 19th century Europe. Although I'm not a specialist of Europe, but I do teach global history. So when I talk about global history, but to be honest, by the time we're getting to the 18th century. I'm already sharpening my knives to get into imperialism. That's kind of what I really <laughs> want to talk about. Um, 19th century imperialism, um, in part because we can talk about China a bit more, which I know a lot more about, of course, and the scramble for Africa and everything else. Um, but like Card Shark, what I like about it is, like I have read about the coffee houses and tea houses of the 18th century, and I have read about the circles in which Voltaire and others kind of traveled and everything else. And this game attempts you to kind of introduce you to those circles or expose you to them. So very early in Carchark, you meet Voltaire and he you're showing him how how you're you are cheating him at cards and he knows that and he finds it hugely entertaining. And he wants to learn about people and it's just this is a good take and this is a good I think representation of that kind of cultural milieu that these guys are kind of floating around in. I think some people kind of criticize it now, which is not unfair either. But um, I think that that was interesting. And then Victoria 3, um, you know, Bob wrote a piece on this uh, 
for the website, which I thought was really good. And I'll talk about again, actually, in just a second, in terms of the kind of history of the Victoria 3, the approach to history of the Victoria 3 is kind of inviting you to use. Um, but I had never thought about... Um, you know, trade so much in my life as I did playing Victoria 3. Um, and just again, forcing me to stop, because I'm not a specialist in this period, so forcing me to stop and think about the granularities of who built what when and which countries kind of became industrialized first. So, for example, I would recommend if you have Victoria 3 to play the Kingdom of Two Sicilies. I found it a very enjoyable playthrough. And it's really interesting because you kind of you kind of run into this buzzsaw a little bit where especially the southern part of Italy is pretty agrarian. And the game, and this is how they've interpreted it, but it's not a terribly unfair take of early 1800s Italy. And so it, it just kind of, I found that it, it stimulated my thinking about the period in really interesting ways. And I liked that about Victoria 3, which... That game surprised me a lot, actually, in a lot of different ways this year, um, in, in good ways. Yeah. In interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, based on what I wrote on the website, I have a kind of a complicated take on Victoria 3, but I do think it is really useful to have some, uh, like you were saying, kind of that kind of step-by-step -step experience with what were the kind of key developments in this era that led to, you know, the age of high imperialism, as we might call it. Um and I think, too, you know, you uh, saying like you were kind of embarrassed saying, oh, I learned a lot about 18th, 19th century history. And it's like, I think that's fantastic. I mean, I feel like that's kind of the viewpoint of History Respawn in general is that uh, we aren't one of these websites where we are saying, you and I saying, we know everything right. there is to know about these topics. That That's why we have guests on, right? That's the whole point. <laughs> and so to say that you learned something from these games or you kind of had a, a better appreciation of it, I mean, that's 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 fantastic. Because like, how boring would it be if we knew everything about all of these games or, you know, knew everything about the backstory or the history? It's like there's always some different viewpoint, some new perspective that you can get about the past by playing it as a game instead even if it yeah. was something like uh you know for your you're focused on modern china right i'm sure mm -hmm. even from that there could be a perspective coming from a game developer coming in a game format that could be wholly new that could kind of change the way you look at things and so yeah, i kind of think that too with victoria 3 um but you know the perspective that they're putting out at least for me is not one that i'm i'm too keen on but that's not to say <laughs> it's bad it's not to say it's bad it's just it's not how i would present it but that's great I think you well, know, I, yeah. the more of these games that are out there, the better it is, I think, in general. Well, I unified Italy basically as a European economic superpower that never got into wars, um, but still colonized a little bit of West Africa. So I was kind of, you know, it's kind of, that's the issue. You know, this bleeds into the segues, but into the next topic, Bob, because mm. I could talk a little bit about how Go for it. Please do. Yeah. Well, but to, for that to work, could you expand just really briefly on, you know, we're, we've kind of mentioned that you have a take on it, but you didn't quite exactly specify. So could you very briefly <laughs> let the listeners, do you know, but seriously, because like this actually helps me explain how, you, how I use it in the classroom too. Like, what is the historical approach Victoria 3 effectively doesn't just endorse, the mechanics of the game are kind of based on it, really. Yeah. And yeah. so our, our category now that we're moving into is best game for the history classroom. Uh, and so John's nominee for this, I'm just going to step on it, uh, is mm -hmm. Victoria 3. Uh, and so my position on Victoria 3, as somebody who studied uh, modern imperial history, 19th, 20th century European history in graduate school, 
Uh, you know, I uh, took many classes. I read uh, or at least touched over a thousand secondary sources. That's that a thousand history books on this topic. Uh, my perspective is that Victoria Three promotes a very old-fashioned version of imperial history, one that is focused on uh, numbers, uh, that is focused mm-hmm. on kind of trying to understand uh, the process of imperialism, of colonialism, of industrial development uh, by studying uh, statistics, by studying numbers, uh, quantitative history, uh, as we would call it. And I think that that kind of position was one that was very much in vogue in the mid 20th century, particularly with Marxist historians. Uh, and it is one that has been overtaken in the past 20 years, past 30 years, I would say, uh, with cultural analysis. So instead of looking at uh, numbers and statistics and official records, uh, cultural historians look at uh, cultural artifacts, books, uh, you know, novels, uh, correspondences, uh, you know, cultural festivals, uh, anything and everything that's not a number, basically, <laughs> is part of cultural analysis. And so my position is that, you know, this game, Victoria 3, can give you a kind of a good sense of the kind of mechanics of imperialism, of colonialism, but in order to get a, like a true understanding of what that actually meant, what it actually entailed, you need to have cultural analysis because I feel like with Victoria 3, even though this is a game that's focused on this era of history, it's still too distant from it because it's focused on numbers. Um, that right. you know, there's a human side to the story that you're not getting by just looking at population figures, by looking at the very fancy steambuck, steampunk uh, spreadsheets mm-hmm. that Paradox provides with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and I say this as somebody who's biased, I'm a cultural historian. And, you know, I've been raised and taught uh, with cultural analysis. And so I mm-hmm. look at the kind of history that's promoted by Victoria Three. I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> where are the people? Where are the stories? And it's like, well, you come up with them on your own. And yeah. and I just, for me, it's, it's not good enough. So that's that's my take. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, I've, I've been trained that way, too. So it's just kind of funny because, like, it's kind of, you know, what was the price of gold in 1772? I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't care about that at all. <laughs> you know, Victoria 3 really cares about it. Yeah. Um, one thing I'll say about Victoria 3, and we haven't had a chance to talk about this yet, Bob, is, oh, well, there's two ways to read it. As you play the game more, you start to get a much clearer um, opportunity to pick which way your society is going. So, for example, I could turn Italy into a socialist state or try to do it or something like that in a similar way that you can do in other Paradox games. Um, At the same time, um, it's done in this very much, you know, interest groups way. Like there are industrialists, there are trade unionists, there's the the prime religion. So you still get into this very kind of numbers based or, you know, mathematical kind of construction um of history the other thing i say about it as well is it takes forever to get there it takes forever to get there like i think that there's there i think that there's a counterpoint to your critique of the game but only people who've put in maybe 60 hours minimum are ever going to have any concept you know and that's a lot to ask so the funny thing is i picked it for my best game history classroom and for years we've been doing this and i've been saying i'd love to pick a paradox game i just can't do it and usually when i teach the class there's one student who comes up to me and says can we do such such a paradox game and i look that young person in the eye and i say you and i are the same but we cannot do it because everyone else in this room is normal 
We just yeah. were not able to do it. We cannot do it. So, and Victoria 3 is no better. In fact, it's probably worse. Victoria 3 is a very strange game in that nothing actually happens directly. Oh, you want the you want this you want the um, standard of living to improve in in central Italy? Go and do these three things and wait five real time minutes while the game goes through a year and see if it works. But however, I would use the game in a very scaffolded way. In part, I would show the students look at the kind of things the game wants you to do. I might even have them, Bob, read your piece, for example, or certainly talk to them about it. And and I think, funnily enough, although it's not the kind of game I could just let the students play for half an hour, like we play Sid Meier's Civilization and we talk about it. What is this game more or less telling you to do? Really? Like, really? You know, um, you know, attack Native Americans more or less <laughs> and what actually happened and how do we think about that? Um Victoria 3 is doing that kind of same thing with these kind of high concepts. So I think, I, I really think it could be super useful. And the other part of it is, um, I've told some friends of mine in the economics department about this uh, game, and they are losing their minds with excitement yeah. over this. I bet. Because I'm like, yeah. well, I, you know, my, my basic goal is to change the price of a good, but I can't do it directly. I have to, I have to modernize the workplace and hire people. And they're like, what can you show me this game <laughs> they're like for them it's like an excellent it's hilarious because it's such a good it's such a good fit for some of the things my economist friends want to do yeah for the exact reasons bob is criticizing <laughs> it and that historians like myself and bob i think the vast majority of historians our age bob have been trained with at least cultural competence if not yes full-on cultural historians so it's an interesting shift. And so in the classroom, every year I try and think, what could I let my students play or what would we all play together and talk about? This wouldn't be like that. This would be yeah. me maybe even honestly just showing them a 10-minute video, not even playing, the, or showing them a look yeah. of what we can do in the game. But I couldn't let them touch it. It would it'd be a very rare... It'd be an exception to the rule in that sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, like a lot of Paradox games, this one, probably even more so than others, uh, it feels like an intricate train model that as soon as you touch it, mm -hmm. it's going to break. Uh, and so yes. there were many times when I was playing, I played it about 35 hours or so. I didn't even get to the 60 hour mark like you did. Uh, but the feeling like, Oh, I'm just going to let this run. I'm not going to do anything mm -hmm. to it. I'm just going to let it run and see what happens. Right. And just let it go. And you can have a good time just doing that. And so that's an idea for the classroom. It's just kind of like, uh, just let it run on its own. Let it fast forward, maybe five years. And then let's see what the numbers look like. Uh, but Again, for me, it's always like, okay, let's see what the numbers look like. And I'm sitting there as a cultural mm -hmm. historian. It's yeah. like, okay, these these numbers represent real people's lives. They have real stories. We should learn about those. That tells you more about the experience of yeah. imperialism than numbers do. Uh, you know, mostly because well, can we really trust the numbers? Probably not. Also, do the numbers really tell us the reason behind imperialism? Probably not, because the you know the, the French and the British they never made money off of these things. So why were they doing it? Right? That's a cultural story. Right. Oh, I'm right. sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but, but you know, <laughs> but it's, that's interesting. The game, like you have to do a little bit of like going through tutorials and stuff. But the weird thing with Victoria three is you should probably be in debt like all the time yes. to play yes. the game effectively. Which yes. is such a strange thing. Yes. But, but actually it goes to what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. And, but I would say to be fair to the game and to give it some credit, I would say that in a world, uh, that is a wash in cultural histories of imperialism and empire, that having a game experience like this might be useful because there is some utility in learning the quantitative basis for historical events. Now, I would argue, is it more effective than cultural history? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that, but it is still useful. 
it is still worthwhile. So, and if that's that. just, I've I've noticed as well. Sorry to cut across you, Bob. Um, I think the last couple of years, maybe there's an uptick among certain students as well to be able to talk about, hey, you know, the way we talk, the way we study our past has changed, and there have been distinct phases in the last sixty years. And I can talk to you about those, you yeah. know. And so it's funnily enough, like even though this is somewhat anachronistic, you know, it hopefully we'll see when I I'll, I'll report back when I've done it. Uh, was this a good way to get that conversation started or not? You know? Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to hear. Well, how about you? What was what's the game you're looking? Yeah, to so best game like for the history classroom for me uh, was the newest game from Charles Games. Uh, this is the developer of Attentat, uh, 1942. Uh, Silva Boda, 1945, a couple of uh, very uh, worthwhile and highly recommended games uh, about the Second World War uh, in Czechoslovakia. Uh, and so their newest game was a free mobile game on Google Play and on the App Store uh, called Train to Sachsenhausen. And so this is a game uh, that sees uh, Charles Games uh, depicting uh, the closing of Czech universities in November of 1939. So this is kind of the beginning of breakdown of uh, Czech society during Nazi occupation, during the very beginning of the Second World War. Uh, and the game, is, the, in terms of mechanics, it's an adventure game uh, in which you play a, a student of medicine uh, caught up uh, in this occupation uh, in Czechoslovakia and uh, the game mechanics are reminiscent of uh, really successful mobile games, uh, including uh, uh, Rain, uh, in which you were playing the game by making choices by swiping left or swiping right on the screen. Uh, and so I recommend this game because it is a free mobile game. So it's one that students can get readily. They all have mobile devices. Uh, or at least, you know, I'd say 98% of students have those mobile devices. Uh, and then it's also a game that can be completed in one sitting, right? You can take, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes to play through it. And so it's a game that you could use in a lesson plan in a classroom. And I think uh, this game, I don't want to kind of spoil the elements uh, too much, just spoil the story, uh, but it's a game that plays upon uh, the kind of important uh, historical topics, historical narratives that Charles Games has already explored in Attentat and in Sovoboda. So these are kind of issues related to historical memory uh, about the Second World War, uh, related to occupation and collaboration uh, during the Nazi era, uh, and of course related to, to the Holocaust and you know, kind of uh, uh, concentration camps on the beginning of that process. So uh, just a really awesome bite-size free historical game uh, that came out uh, for mobile devices. I just think it's easily uh, the winner for me in this category. Here, here, and can I just say on accessibility? You know, this time last year we were in um, we were at the AHA uh, in New Orleans, and you know we 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 talked about this, and I was so encouraged to meet people who are like, I want to talk about games in my classroom. I don't know where to start. I myself don't really play or, or such and such. And um, I'm sure there's people listening who feel the same way. This accessibility issue is just enormous. And yeah. we had a bit of fun talking about my Steam Deck at the start of the podcast. But part of my reasoning really was <laughs> students can come to my office and sit there and just play the game for 25 minutes. You know, um, like Victoria 3, for example, is the opposite of 
trained to Sachsenhausen in terms of accessibility. It's just like, forget it. You have to have a pretty decent PC. So that sucks. And I think that people forget that because we're all video game nerds and we're all just used to spending our disposable income on it. Or making our university so, pay for it, right? Well, if we can. <laughs> but uh, yeah, God bless Charles Games. I feel like we should say it every year, but they're what they're doing awesome things yeah basically every time they come out with a game it's it's in this awards contest and so totally. yeah just you know we're putting a good list together of you know favorite history game developers they're in the mix uh for sure and you know paradox too you know for different reasons and i think it's interesting john for this category we've got two very divergent games in terms of playability and play style and accessibility but yet they are two worthwhile games for this category all the same i think that's really cool if i could say briefly before we move on as well and i hate i feel so old saying this but now that we've been teaching for over a decade bob um the change has completely happened next tuesday i start a month-long class about history and science fiction which is largely focused on films but i'll have to do a couple of games in there somewhere because it'd be weird if i don't yeah and we've gone from guys shoehorning games into classes to where like, if I don't have a game somewhere, there'll be a chunk of students going, that's why don't you want to talk about such and such? Yeah. This is about science fiction. Why do you want to talk about Assassin's Creed two or something like that? You know? So, yep. and that's, that's awesome. That's, yeah. that's a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So our next category is best old history game. And so this is a game that had come out in previous years uh, that we have uh, gotten around to this year. Uh, in 2022 and uh, to start us out on this category i've got another guest recording hi my name is ann lady mcdivitt i'm the academic technology specialist for the history department at stanford uh, my history game of 2022 is the legend of heroes trails from zero why this game in particular because it came out in 2010 technically this one is actually quite unique it's a it's a turn-based jrpg and the reason why I'm putting it forth here is because this game is finally getting a Western release. It's the first time it's officially released in the West. Based off of a fan translation that was created in 2020, which was then used as the base for an official version that came out for PC, PS4, um, and Nintendo Switch, which the Nintendo Switch and PC versions are the versions you would want to play for sure. But the Geofront team put a lot of work into this, and I find it completely fascinating that the fan translation, instead of getting shut down, was actually picked up by the, the publishing company and used to, for the official release. And I hope that everyone will go check out Trails from Zero. It's a fantastic video game. It's very story-based and has some fantastic characters. It's a great showcase of the hard work and dedication of the Geofront fan translation team. And it's great to see it actually get an official release. If you want more from me, you can go to anladium.com. You can find my podcast there. You can find some of my columns there. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at anladium. And so Anne's recording there got cut off. I don't know if that was my fault or hers, uh, but it was mine. It, obviously, it was mine. I won't. I won't. Uh... I won't throw her under the bus here, uh, <laughs> but Anne uh, was a, a panelist on a, uh, a, a organization of American historians uh, panel that I did on uh, history and games, and she's the author of uh, a book called Hot Tubs and Pac-Man, Gender and the Early Video Game Industry in the United States, uh, which was published by DeGroder in 2020. And so 
Uh, I really liked uh, Anne's contribution because it is talking about basically historical game preservation and, you know, this uh, kind of instance here where it's a game that came out in 2010, uh, but it didn't reach Western audiences until, you know, the developers uh, worked with a fan translation of this JRPG and then published it in uh, this year, 2022, and God hope that, that uh, some of these fan uh, translators got some money from this. Uh, but it does bring up this topic of historical game preservation, uh, which uh, works well for the game I'd like to recommend to best old history game, uh, which is Atari 50. Uh, this is a collection of, in some cases, 50 years old Atari games that was put together uh, by a uh, new developer, but also kind of interested in historical uh, game preservation, uh, Digital Eclipse. Uh, and so Atari 50 uh, includes uh, basically a huge catalog. I think it's over 100 games of uh, Atari's uh, kind of back catalog going back to uh, 1972. Uh, and in addition to that back catalog of games, uh, including things like combat and missile command. Uh, it also includes uh, new uh, short documentaries uh, that Digital Eclipse filmed uh, with some of these old developers who actually made these games. Uh, and so the game uh, Atari 50, it works in a sense as a collection of old games, but it works even better as almost a, a museum piece on the history of Atari, and I think it's so easy to recommend and compelling because it is uh, something that kind of updates these old games, but also gives you a lot of context behind why these games are important, why they're uh, interesting, and then also shares with you kind of firsthand stories from the people who made them. Uh, and I think this is the way that I want uh, kind of history games or historical games to be presented in the future uh, is that I don't want to go to a museum. I don't want to read about them in a book. I want them in packages like <laughs> this, where not only am I getting kind of the museum level context of the game, but then I can actually also play the game that they're talking about at the same time. And I feel like, you know, I've gone to many uh, game museums. I, I live about 20 minutes away from the National Video Game Museum in Frisco, Texas. Uh, and I've just never had as great or as compelling as an experience with old games as I have with Atari 50. Awesome. That's, yeah, I love that we're getting there. You know, Radiohead had that kind of interactive exhibit thing on Epic Games. I think that was last year. It was earlier this year. Um, Blizzard have kind of done something in this direction, but nothing from what, like what you're describing. Yeah. Here. Yeah. My 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 old game is a cheat. It's Crusader Kings Three, <laughs> um, which, as I said to Bob before we started recording, um, I got my Steam wrapped yesterday or whatever they call it, but it's the Spotify wrapped. But Steam is doing one, and uh, they may as well have called it uh, John Cower in Shame. You spent a lot of time playing Crusader Kings Three. Um, in my defense, I figured out a way to create an Irish slash. Uh, uh catalan family that controlled all of europe for about 100 years that was fun um i want to throw one in though i do this to bob every time listeners can't tell because they don't know but before we record we lay out what we're going to do and almost every podcast bob and i do i think of something while he's talking and i throw it on him so he bob doesn't know this is happening and it wasn't mentioned earlier <laughs> but uh the legend of tian ding which is a game i really have to do for you to respond soon which is a side-scrolling action platformer 
uh, game set in colonial Taiwan, that is to say Taiwan under control of the Japanese, um, which is not a period that gets a lot of uh, interest, at least in the West, typically. Just a beautiful looking game. It's on sale 50% off right now on Steam, which I'm guessing makes it $10 or so, $15 maybe. And um, it just looks and sounds great and is wonderful. And people should think about it as kind of a left field choice. And if, if you don't play it, I'll be talking about it soon. Yeah, I mean, if ever there was a game that was made just for John Harney, it's I this know. one. I mean, that's just outrageous. Like when you, I think we talked about it in uh, like a text chain or something like that, or uh, maybe I'd sent it. To, I, I I can't remember what happened, but I just remember yeah. thinking like, gosh, it's like somebody just developed a game just for John. Like <laughs> exactly, this is I this know. is John's honeypot <laughs> right here. Uh, and it's great. It's a good game, and it's not like like with went Cult of the Lamb. Well, Cult of the Lamb can. Really, dro- can really drag you in, but Legend of Tending is not a hugely demanding game of you, which is yeah. which I like. It's I mean that as a compliment. Yes, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to our most anticipated game of 2023. This is a most anticipated history game of 2023, uh, and I'll start things out uh, by talking about some games that were mentioned at the Game Awards, uh, which occurred earlier in December. Uh, and so in the Game Awards, you have awards for games this year, uh, but mostly this uh, Jeff Keeley produced event is about <laughs> promoting games that are coming out <laughs> next year. And so two of those games uh, caught my eye. Uh, first is uh, a sequel to Valiant Hearts. Uh, Valiant Hearts, a Ubisoft game uh, that uh, was uh, kind of a uh, exploration of the First World War, beginning of the First World War. Uh, and so now we're getting a sequel uh, to Valiant Hearts called Valiant Hearts Coming Home. And so this is a another Ubisoft game that they are developing in partnership with Netflix. Uh, so Netflix, the video streaming platform, has gotten into games, uh, particularly mobile games, uh, kind of in a big way this year. And so in 2023, they're going to debut... Uh, Valiant Hearts coming home, and I love the first Valiant Hearts. We covered it in one of our first videos for History Respawn, and I can't I can't wait to see what's going to happen with this upcoming game. And um, then the second one uh, is another game that was announced at the Game Awards, uh, and that game is Hades Two. Uh, so Hades, Woo! oh I know I'm so excited. Hades Bob the Bob Funny Pot game. <laughs> I know right. Uh, <laughs> Hades One uh, from uh, Supergiant Games. This was kind of the consensus game of the year uh, back in 2020. Um, this uh, action roguelite set in the Greek underworld. Uh, we did a, a really good episode with Kate Cook uh, for that uh, game. And so now Hades 2 is coming out. Uh, and you are playing the princess of the underworld uh, fighting against the titan Kronos. Uh, and so this is kind of a new player character, new god, uh, or I should say, I guess, a titan uh, that you were fighting against, and uh, yeah, but, I mean, all you had to say was Hades too, and I'm I'm there. But <laughs> I mean, the setting and the player character seems really compelling as well. Cool. Yeah, I I, I uh, that was such a rare thing in video game video game world a surprise trailer, where like the music clicks in, you're like, oh my god, that's <laughs> that's the Hades music. Yeah, the real like wrestling. The, oh my god that's his music kind of moment <laughs> and I, first bob i swear to god first thing i thought of was bob must be so happy the first thought <laughs> I, I know um, i i yeah. think return of the Oberdin is the only game that i've liked more this yeah. these past couple decades than than hades one so which tells its own its own thing that's a whole story I have, um, 
we can give a couple of shout outs, a couple of big games coming out in the next year. Hopefully Assassin's Creed Mirage. Um, you know, I, I it's it's in our history respond contracts to talk about Assassin's Creed all the time. Um because we have to. And uh Diablo four, which could be very exciting. Um, let's see what comes out with that. Um my personal choice though, um I would like to choose Contraband from Avalanche Studios. But I don't know if it's coming out in 2023. We actually haven't heard about it in a long time, which is making me a little bit worried. Very stylish uh, trailer, kind of teaser trailer back in 2021, which it's supposed to be a co-op heist game is what they're saying it is. But what I liked about that teaser was it's in effectively, it's in a place called Bayan, which is the Filipino Mm -hmm. word for nation. So it's the Philippines, basically. And it has this kind of 1970s, and of course, the Philippines, from an American perspective, is a post-colonial situation, right? So, like, there's a lot of that. I'm really excited to see where that goes. Um, let's cross our fingers and hope for the best. But uh, a game that I know is coming out next year would be Mask of the Rose from Fail Better Games. For people who don't know, they made the game Sunless Seas and Sunless Skies, as well as the browser game Fallen London. So all their games are set in this Fallen London, which is kind of a... Um, I don't know how to describe it. Dystopian, Victorian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting is what it is. It's interesting. And they've gone all in. And uh, you can go to the Fallen London game online to check it out. Um, Sunless Skies and Sunless Seas are both, I think, are both excellent games. Mask of the Rose is a different vibe, more of a kind of a visual novel kind of approach. Um, but still in that kind of quasi or alternative Victorian London thing. So so Mask of the Rose is my kind of real pick. And um I hope it's great. Um, I think it will be. I, I've liked everything they've done so far. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. another one of those developers we were talking about. Paradox, talking about Charles' game. I feel like Fail Better Games is right in that wheelhouse of uh, yeah these these developers. These are people to watch uh, for history or history adjacent contents. Yeah. So looking forward to that. Um, all right, let's move on to our second to last category, penultimate category. Uh, for these History Game Awards. And this category is Non-History Game of 2022. So these are games that aren't directly related to history. They might have some kind of historical angles to them. Uh, But these uh, are games that we just really, really liked and we wanted to give an award to. So, uh, John, I'm going to make you go first because I'm rude. Uh, John, tell me, what is your (laughs) Non-History Game of 2022? Sure. Uh, I'm going to go with a deep cut. Out of left field, no one's going to see this coming. Nobody else is picking this game. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think Elden Ring is the best non-history game of 2022. Um, Controversial. I still have, yeah, I still haven't finished it. Hilariously <laughs> enough, um, I, uh, I, 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 fig- I had a realization in the last couple of months that the reason I like Dark Souls games is because I'm effectively meditating when I play them. Mm. Um, in the sense of I'm just kind of completely focused on them, not thinking about anything else. Elden Ring, uh, weirdly, it doesn't. It might not feel this way to people who haven't played one of these games before. It's far and away the most accessible Souls-like game. Um, and it's also, I think it's the best one they've done. I think it looks wonderful. The character work is better. It, you, could, you could argue that it's an historical element to it. It has that same kind of dark, medieval, you know, what a people, you know, people from Japan who've decided to interpret European medieval history in the weirdest way they possibly can on purpose. <laughs> what did they create? The answer is Elden Ring, and it's fantastic. Um, it's a great game. I'm sure people listening have heard about it, and I've heard that it's a great game. 
Elden Ring is crazy good. Um, are we doing honorable, honorable mentions as well? Yeah, you do, do, go ahead and do your honorable mention. Yeah, yeah honorable, men, honorable mention then would be Stray, um, which is, I loved Stray. It's about five hours, I think, this six is, hours This maybe. is for the listener, this is the cat game. This is the cat game, thank you. So you're controlling a cat. I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to ruin anything. Um, it, it It's a beautiful game in terms of how it tells its own story. It is a kind of uh, a dystopian setting, I suppose. Um, uh, but Stray, if you have a PC or a PlayStation, I think I really think Stray is worth your time. And it's like an afternoon if you happen to have one. Um, a long afternoon, admittedly. Um, and uh, I was very touched by Stray. And I am a cat owner. It's true. Maybe that was part of it. <laughs> you, you may <laughs> but, uh, actually Stray be recording surrounded by cats right now. I, yeah. If you've heard, you may or may not have heard purring through half of the podcast. <laughs> But it was great. How about you, Bob? What's your non-history game of uh, 2022? Yeah, so I'll start with my honorable mention. My honorable mention is Vampire Survivors, uh, which is a. I know. I think there's a kind of a, a kind of a genre for this. You know, kind of a clicker game. I I prefer to call it call it a do nothing game. Uh, <laughs> and so, Vampire Survivors, you are uh, in a kind of pixelated Castlevania like. Uh, setting where you are trying to survive uh, 30 minutes of being attacked by ghouls and goblins and zombies, uh, but not vampires, uh, weirdly enough. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you are uh, only have one control, and that is to use the stick to move your character. Uh, and as you move around, your character produces uh, basically what could be described as bullet hell, right? You pick up power-ups that allow you to increase the number of, uh, projectiles, the different variety of weapons that you're using, but you are not actually pushing buttons, right? The game automatically attacks for you uh, in kind of a set sequence. Uh, and so this is a game that stole about 30 hours of my life uh, playing it on the Steam Deck, um, hashtag first world problems, uh, <laughs> and then also playing it on uh, Xbox Game Pass. Uh, but you don't need to get Game Pass to afford this game because right now it's on sale for $4. And let me tell you that this game is worth about $70 in terms of <laughs> entertainment value. Um, it, it may sound really simple, but there are kind of, there's kind of a lot of nuance uh, to this game and an understanding what power-ups to pick up and when and how to move your character around the stage. Uh, but even though there's nuance, even though there's kind of complicating factors that come in later on, uh, it's also a great game to play while somebody else is watching television, right? If you're sitting there on a mobile device, and it's also on iPhones, I should say, um, you know, sitting there playing this while you're waiting at a bus stop or uh, sitting and playing this uh, with your daughter, in my case, uh, my eight-year-old daughter. Uh, who loves to loves to play this game, loves to talk to me about this game, loves to watch me play it, uh, but then also to play it while we're watching television, right? While we're watching cartoons or something like that. Uh, so it's kind of an idle game. I get another category it could fall into, uh, but it's one that uh, I have not idly been thinking about. I've been actively thinking about this game for much of the fall, and it's just it's fantastic. But even better than Vampire Survivors, my official nominee for non-history game of 2022 uh, is Norco uh, from the developer's Geography of Robots. Uh, so Norco is a point-and-click adventure game that is set in a uh, kind of cyberpunk uh, version of Norco, Louisiana. 
so this is a game that is set in a uh, oil company town uh, in the kind of Delta region of southeastern Louisiana. Um, the reason why I picked this game was because I think more than any other game that I think I've ever played, uh, Norco does an amazing job of capturing a sense of a place. Uh, so it is a kind of a near future version of Norco, Louisiana, but uh, it is one that is taking uh, kind of inspiration from current politics, current culture, uh, current environmental issues related to living in Louisiana. Uh, and this game really spoke to me uh, kind of in an emotional way uh, because I spent five years of my life uh, living in Louisiana, working at Louisiana Tech before I moved back to Texas with my family. And, you know, I, I lived in northwest Louisiana, so quite a ways away from Norco itself. Uh, but so much of the world that is portrayed in Norco, the kind of perspective of the player character, uh, the kind of dialogue of uh, the NPCs that you run into, the kind of material culture of Louisiana is just so accurately portrayed. And it is a it's a heart wrenching game. There is a lot of humor in it, but it is also a game that you really feel the weight of what living in Louisiana is like. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, you know Louisiana is kind of uh, uh, center stage for the environmental crisis in the United States, you know, in terms of uh, oil production, in terms of climate change, in terms of massive storms and, uh, you know, pollution uh, and how all of those things interact. And it's in Norco that I felt like I got a really... It's the most accurate sense of a place that I've ever gotten. And, and I can speak to that a bit from living there for five years in the sense, you know, that over the past few decades that Louisiana is a forgotten place with forgotten people and that it's a place where nothing good can be sustained over a long period of time. And there's kind of a hopelessness to the state that uh, the people there are aware of, but they fight against it. And I just think Norco does a really amazing job of capturing that. And uh, to be straight with you all, I, I played this game on Game Pass. I just thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll play an hour of it and see what it's like and then move on. It's because I need to play other games for this podcast, this episode of History Respawn. And I started Norco and I stayed up until three o'clock in the morning finishing it. Like I just could not put it down. And it's just an unbelievable experience. And I recommend it if you like old-fashioned point-and-click adventure games, but I also recommend it if you are interested in kind of an amazing story. It's just a it's a great story, regardless of whether it's a game or a book or a movie. It's just a great, great story. So Norco, my non-history game of the year for 2022. Awesome. I feel like we should have sound effects. <laughs> applause or something yeah i mean it's an incredible experience uh just amazing i couldn't recommend it more highly especially for people who you know maybe listen to this uh you know who are from louisiana uh i think it really does an amazing job of kind of capturing um the feeling of that state and the people and the politics and the culture and uh, the material culture again like you know you go into a, a pub you go into a place of business and you see like, uh, oh, off in the distance, there's the uh, uh, drive-by uh, daiquiri place. Uh, and then, oh, okay, this character has got an LSU poster 
uh, in their office. And that's not at all out of place, you know, anywhere in the state of Louisiana. It's just, uh, so I wasn't in the Southeast, but there's just so much like, so much homogeneity with the culture and the feeling and the kind of, uh, 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 you know, I don't know, ideology of Louisiana that permeates this game. And I think that the developers, uh, who I think most of them are from this area of Louisiana, I think they've just done a fantastic job of capturing that and capturing the problems with this current crisis with the state and then with the country at large. It's just fantastic. I can't, it's, I loved it. Fantastic. All right. Are we ready for our last category, history game of 2022? And to lead us into our last discussion, the game that we are going to award the highest prize from History Respawn, I've got our last contribution uh, from our guest recordings. Hi, my name is James Coltrane, and I'm an assistant professor of game art at the University of Connecticut. And I'm the founder of and lead developer at Historiated Games, the studio behind the Indicate award-winning historical game, Blackhaven. I'm afraid I'm not going to be terribly original based on the buzz I've been seeing online, but my history game of 2022 is Pentamen. I'm only about halfway through this 2D historical narrative, which is set in 16th century Bavaria, but I've already been incredibly impressed with the wide range of cultural and historical information it's able to convey in a thoughtful murder mystery. I think the art of the game in many ways is emblematic of its overall approach to history. The game takes inspiration from late medieval illuminated manuscripts that were produced just after the advent of printing, and it uses miniatures and marginalia, as well as books of hours, calendars, and other motifs to show transitions between scenes. The art style is bright, colorful, and consistent with period styles, but it's also not afraid to simplify and generalize when it makes for a more clear UI or user experience for players. This mix of richness and practical compromise is found throughout the game, and it gives players both tons of relevant historical detail, but also enough expository content to prevent them from getting lost or bored. Uh, it puts us in the shoes of a middling artisan, and we get introduced to daily life, agriculture, cosmology, theology, politics, art and architecture, social networks, and etiquette of the period, and we meet a broad swath of society from shepherds and nuns to clergy and nobles. The game is also committed to adding a wealth of information to a dynamically updating journal, allowing players to refer to an interactive glossary to clear up confusion and help them track the murder mystery as they go along. In many ways, the game reminds me of and improves upon the sort of contextual teaching done by last year's The Forgotten City. Gameplay-wise, the persistent but subtly changing small town also is reminiscent of one of my 2D favorite narratives, Night in the Woods. While it's moving things in the right direction, the one critique I have is I still want to see games push the limits of how far we can immerse players in historical worlds with having to, without having to be so on the nose while we're teaching them. Like in many narrative period games, there are still conversations where the characters speak as if they themselves are learning key points for the first time, almost like they're taking cues from AP History flashcards. The game's discussions of Luther's writings, for instance, felt somewhat clinical to me, as if the script was already aware of a future reformation that would still be in its infancy, infancy for the game's characters. Nevertheless, that's only a small quibble. This is an absolutely awesome game and a model for how we can cram a huge amount of historical learning into a, into a tight and entertaining story. So Pentiment is my history game of 2022. I hope everyone listening buys a copy and enjoys this rich journey as soon as they can. 
As far as my studio, Historiated, we will soon be announcing our second historical title, an all-ages VR game that will release in late summer of 2023. So if you're interested in that, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Historiated Game, for more updates. Happy New Year, everybody. So that was the historian and game developer, uh, James Coltrane, known best for uh, his uh, game Blackhaven, uh, which we covered on History Respawn. Uh, and uh, from James, we've got another nomination uh, for Pentiment. And so that's uh, James nominating Pentiment, Kate Cook nominating Pentiment, and I, too, am nominating Pentiment for the history game of 2022. Um, I j just add on to what Kate and James have said. I think that this game uh, does an amazing job of giving the player a quick sense of not just life in the 16th century uh, for one uh, player character, right? For Andreas, uh, the kind of uh, primary player character of Pentiment, but then also through the kind of experiences and the uh, dialogue with NPCs, you also get a better sense of kind of uh, not just the perspective of Andreas, but then uh, the townspeople and the nuns and uh, the clergy and uh, travelers and the aristocracy, uh, all getting caught up uh, in a set of murder mysteries uh, involving this small town of Tassing, but then also the ways in which the world has changed and how that change is affecting them, uh, not only through uh, the discovery of the new world, uh, but then uh, the onset of the printing press, uh, uh, Martin Luther, as uh, James was talking about there, the Reformation, uh, and then later on in the game, getting into other topics, uh, not only looking forward into the early modern era, but then also looking back uh, into the uh, medieval era and even the ancient era uh, and how all of that history is affecting the lives and continuing to affect the lives of people going forward. And, uh, you know, I talked about Norco as a, a game that gives you an amazing sense of place and an amazing uh, sense of uh, kind of lived experience. And I think Pentiment does that as well. Yeah, that uh, all sounds amazing. I need to play Pentiment. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm starting to get a sense of what the game of the year is, but I, I didn't go with Pentiment because I haven't played it. Um, I went with Card Shark, uh, which I talked about a few times in this podcast. And, um, you know, funnily enough, actually, I think the two games that you and I, Bob, are kind of going with, you're going with Pentiment, I'm going with Card Shark. Um, I like Card... First of all, I like Card Shark. It, it was fun to play. Um, it still is fun to play. I'm still playing it. Um, but again, you know, you're somewhat pentiment in the way that it's kind of opening up these different kind of ways of looking at different eras and everything. What I like about Card Shark, you know, we've had for the last couple of years talking about colonization, imperialism and words like that. And in the context of really kind of important, you know, social things like, um, you know, living in the United States, for example, uh, the murder of George Floyd, right? And things like this and Black Lives Matter and all these kinds of ideas. And I think that Lots of energies have been released, which are which are really good um, in the set. Certainly in our line of work, I think lots of positive things have come out of it in terms of the kind of things that are now being encouraged and some of the things up in the classroom a bit more easily than they used to without needing to kind of push it so hard. Um, but I also think we're a little bit guilty, and I'm a 20th century specialist, so I'm as guilty as anybody else of doing this. We're a little bit guilty of getting really focused on kind of this modern perspective. 
as if everything began in 1850. Um, and what I like about Card Shark is that, you know, you play this put-upon person who if the Comte de saint doesn't take you under his wing, you're just going to, you know, you're just going to have this, sh you know, uh, sharp, brutish, short experience, you know, and then it's over. Um, after you meet the Comte de saint the next characters you meet are Romani characters, which is like the game very deliberately making a point of like, you're the outsiders and you're going to cheat the ancien regime you're going to cheat the haves but you're the have not and i like and it without being preachy i like the way the game does that so for me there's two things there's kind of sadly humans have sucked before the modern age of imperialism <laughs> but also of course you know this is france in the 1500s france is an imperial state at that point um and there's people in france who are also suffering from the same systems that are punishing people outside of France. I mean, the television show Peaky Blinders, certainly this is the first two seasons, for example, it's like, hey, if you live in Birmingham in 1920, your life is terrible. You know, <laughs> like basically um, in different ways from the ways that being, you know, um, uh, being Indian is terrible, for example. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? So so I really like that. And I, and I, I just think that um, um, it's such a pleasure. These are games that people used to call, used to think of as smaller games or whatever. And the lines between small indie produced games and big games are blurring all the time. And thematically, as people who like historical games, we're just, we're winning all the time. It's yeah. just, I feel so spoiled and I am so happy to be spoiled. And I'm happy to see Pentiment get game of the year, but I'm also happy to be able to give Card Sharks its druthers a little bit before we wrap up. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll say Pentiment number one, Card Shark number two. I have no problem. With that works order. for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think just to piggyback off your point there, it's amazing to me. I went into 2022 uh, expecting to pick a AAA game as my history mm -hmm. game of the year. And in particular, thinking about Horizon Forbidden West, just assuming going into the year that that was going to be my game of the year. Uh, and here we are, and we've got two indie games, um, you know, Pentiment winning, but then Card Shark coming in runner up. And, you know, this is not the. This is not what you would have expected. I at least I wouldn't have expected, and yet it 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 speaks to the strength not only of history games as a genre, but then also the strength of independent developers who can do really fun, cool, nuanced things with these histories. And you know whether it's Card Shark, you know, and the amazing way that it brings in historical detail without hitting you over the head with mm -hmm. it. Or if it's Pentiment, where it's kind of based off of the developer's long-term interest in medieval history and also uh, using historians in the development process and including a bibliography uh, in the game's credits so <laughs> you can follow that up. You know, it's kind of a labor of love, a decades-long labor of love with the kind of early modern medieval past. And I think that that's, like you said, it's really exciting to be... Uh, not only living in an era where those kind of games can come out, but also being a part of something like History Respond where we get to talk about it. Um, it's just, it's really great. And I'm, yeah. I'm really happy uh, that you're on board, John, but then also that we had our, our, our four guests, James, Kate, Chris, and Anne, uh, who were willing to share with us their, their kind of views. And so it's not just two of us talking about it, even <laughs> though that'd still be a fantastic episode. Uh, but I think I feel like this worked pretty well. I hope you feel the same way, John, and, and maybe we can do some more of this uh, with episodes in the future. Oh, I, it was awesome. I'm very grateful to our guests. Thanks so much, guys. 
Uh, and thank you, dear listener, uh, for joining us on this Game of the Year episode. Uh, and hope you enjoyed all of History Respawn's work over the past year. We've got more episodes scheduled uh, for 2023. The history games never stop. They won't stop, whether they're coming from AAA developers uh, or from indie developers. Uh, we will try to cover as much as we can, even though that's <laughs> it's impossible to cover at all. We will We'll do our best, and uh, if you enjoy our work, uh, please consider visiting us at historyrespawn.com, uh, where you can find our uh, back episodes. Uh, and then if you really enjoy our work, if you uh, want to help us continuing uh, this analysis and uh, coverage of history games, uh, please visit our Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash history respond. Uh, and I think with that, that brings an end to... Uh, this history game of the year episode, uh, you know, happy new year to those of you who are listening. Happy holidays. Uh, and John, I'll, I'll leave you with the final words. Uh, just, yeah, happy new year. And thanks for listening and watching and reading the website and keep coming back. We're good. We're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. Is that right, Bob? We're not going anywhere. <laughs> All thanks, right. Everyone. Bye listeners. Bye.